Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. We're in Genesis chapter 16 today. It's the fourth sermon in this series on the life of Abraham, spanning from Genesis uh, chapter 11 to Genesis chapter 25. Today we'll be looking at the entirety of Genesis chapter 16. When I was a relatively new Christian um, at the latter part of my high school years, uh, I read a whole category of books that were formative in shaping how I live my Christian life. They were books on practicing the spiritual disciplines. Started off with a well-known book by Southern Baptist Theological Seminary professor Donald Whitney. He wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, That whetted my appetite for learning how to practice various spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible, memory, uh, even disciplines like fasting and solitude. I ended up reading other books like Kent Hughes' book, The Disciplines of a Godly Life, Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, John Piper's book on fasting called A Hunger for God. Uh, If any of you are interested in learning more about the spiritual disciplines, I'd love to tell you more about these books. These were rich resources that gave me a lot of benefit. But as I reflect back on those times, on what I read in these various books written by various authors, I realize now that there was one spiritual discipline that I desperately needed and continue to need that none of those books addressed. And it's this, the discipline of waiting. The discipline of waiting. I must confess that waiting is hard for me as I would assume it is hard for many of you as well. We live in a culture of instant gratification. Our psychology is so wired to expect what we want Immediately, it pains me to wait for my food to cook in the oven. And so what does our culture give us? The instant pot. Or in my case, what do my parents give me? An instant pot. Something that I've enjoyed many, many times, including last night. I don't like waiting next week for the next episode in the show, in the TV series that I am following. And so what does the culture give me? It gives me the phenomenon of binge-watching in Netflix. I don't like perhaps having to research the question that I'm holding in my mind and having to go to the library, find a book, and and read a whole ton just to find uh, the answers to my inquiries. And so what does the culture give me? It gives us, okay, Google. Ask your Google Home, and it will answer. We live in a culture where we expect things to come to us instantly, and so it's no surprise that we bring the same expectations to God. We expect instant answers to our prayers. We expect instant guidance when we're lost. We expect instant provision when we're in need. We expect instant joy when we're sad. But that's not how God works. God works in our waiting. Psalm 130, verses five to six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Psalm 40, verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. James 5, verse seven, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And that, my friends, is how God has chosen to fulfill his promises to us. God's promises 
for lack of a better analogy, don't cook in an instant pot to be ready for us in minutes. They grow like crops in the ground, slowly but surely. Days can pass without any tangible growth. And if you stare at the seed as soon as it has been planted and expect for tangible growth to be witnessed in the span of 30 minutes or hours or even an entire day, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's going to feel like an eternity with very little results. But if you wait patiently, you'll find that one day that little seed has grown into a full plant without you even noticing. That's what our text today is about. It's about the importance of the discipline of waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promises. And the way that it's going to teach us this lesson is by showing us the consequences of not waiting. Abram and Sarai are going to fail yet again to walk by faith. They're going to fail to trust in God and to wait on the Lord to answer his promises in his way and in his timing. But the good news for all of us is that their failures just like our failures, don't derail God's plans. Far from it. Instead, the Lord will use our failures to show the beauty and comfort of his amazing and undeserved grace. So let's read our text today, Genesis chapter 16, verses one to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, And she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son. 
And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The title of this sermon is Waiting for God's Promises. Waiting for God's Promises. And my aim today is to show you that the weaker our love for God, the weaker our waiting on God. The weaker our love for God, the weaker our waiting on God. We're going to have three points today that trace the storyline in chapter 16 for our three main characters. First, Sarai's anger. Second, Abram's passivity. And third, Hagar's hope. Sarai's anger, Abram's passivity, and Hagar's hope. First, Sarai's anger. Verse 1 tells us who and what chapter 16 is about. It introduces one of the main characters and the main plot lines of this uh, part of Abram's life. It's about Abram's wife, Sarai, and the fact that she still had no children. As we saw in chapter 15, Abram is uh, encountering the Lord. He's questioning whether God's promises will be answered of, of a son and of land, and God reissues his promise to him, and he believes that promise, and it's credited to him as righteousness. That's what we saw in our last sermon in this series. It appears that Abram is content to wait and to see how God will answer his promises. Now Sarai, it turns out, doesn't feel the same way. Verse three tells us that it had been 10 years since God had first given Abram and Sarai, the promises in chapter 12 led them from Haran, uh, from the land of Abram's father, and into the land of Canaan. It's been 10 years of waiting with no answer. God promised that they would be blessed. God promised that they would multiply. God promised that they would become a great nation. But after all that time, Sarai has failed to produce even a single child for her husband. Her response to this is captured in verse 2. She tells her husband, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, Sarai is not just stating a fact here. Okay? She's not just saying, you know, I can't have children and it's because of God. She is expressing her anger towards God. She's saying, God is the one who has done this to me. He's the one I blame. God promised us a child and I want a child, but he has prevented that from happening. And so Sarai decides to take matters into her own hands. In verse two, she tells Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Sarai, she's, she's done waiting. She's done waiting for God to do something in her body, to change her physiology so that this barren woman could now become fruitful and have children. And so she comes up with this plan. She seizes control over the situation as she presents her maidservant, an Egyptian named Hagar, to her husband to have as a second wife so that Sarai might have children through her. This was actually a common practice at the time where a servant would have a child on behalf of her barren mistress. The servant would function as what we know as a surrogate mother so that her mistress would no longer suffer the shame and the embarrassment of being barren and childless. It wasn't unusual for this to happen. So Sarai isn't proposing something radical or controversial. She's really just uh, borrowing a technique used by the people around her to solve her own problems. But that didn't make what she did right. The fact that everyone else was doing it wasn't a good reason for her to do it because she had something that the rest of the world didn't have, the promises of God. 
Nevertheless, Abram consents to his wife's plan. Verse three says that Sarai gave Hagar to Abram as a wife and very quickly she was able to conceive. And as soon as she conceived, Sarai's whole plan starts to unravel because something happens that she didn't anticipate. Verse four says, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The Hebrew word for contempt here means to consider lightly. Whereas Hagar used to look at her mistress with a weightiness, with a reverence and a respect, she did so no longer. She was small in her eyes now. She looked down on her because within moments, she was able to do what her mistress was unable to do for decades, give Abram a child of his own. What did this mean? Well, perhaps that meant that she had become more valuable to Abram than Sarai. Or perhaps it even meant that God's blessing rested on her and not on Sarai, and that she would be the vehicle of God's blessing to pour out his blessings to all the families of the world. Now, Sarai, she's not about to wait around and find out because she is furious. She is so taken up with anger by the way Hagar is treating her that she starts blaming Abram. And all he did was go along with her plans. Look at what she says in verse five. May the wrong done to me be on you. She's saying, I want you to hurt, to suffer, to be in pain, the same way that I have suffered and been in pain. I want you to feel the same pain that I have felt in being looked down upon like trash by my own servant. That's bad enough. But then she says something even worse at the end of verse five. She says, may the Lord judge between me and you, between you and me. She's calling upon the Lord to call down curses on her own husband. Now, wasn't she just angry with God? Isn't she going through this season in her faith where she's doubting God's goodness? The very only reason why she presented this plan of having Abram marry her Egyptian servant Hagar was because she thought that she had to fix God's mistakes. And yet here she is calling upon the name of the Lord, not because she trusted him, not because she was seeking him, but because she wanted to use him as a means of vengeance to hurt her husband. Sarai's furious. And Abram doesn't know what to do. So he takes the easy way out in verse six. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Do whatever you want with her. I don't care. Just get out of my face. That's what Sarai does. Verse six says that she dealt harshly with Hagar, a phrase that can also be translated as she humiliated her. You're gonna look down on me? Well, wait till you see what I can do to you. You're gonna treat me like trash? Well, I'm gonna treat you worse. We don't know all the details of the horrible things that she did, but it was so bad that it caused Hagar to run away. A pregnant woman, alone in the desert, trying to eventually wander back to her homeland in Egypt because of the fierce anger of her mistress. Anger can be a horrible thing, can't it? It doesn't have to be horrible. God is righteously angry against our sin. And yet, when he is angry, he doesn't do so sinfully. He doesn't do so selfishly. He's anger against wrongdoing, against injustice and oppression, yet when he acts on that anger, it is always right. But in the hearts of sinful men and women like us, 
And like Hagar, uh, sorry, like Sarai, anger often does horrible things, both to ourselves and to those around us. Now, what Sarai's example shows us is what lies at the heart of anger. What is it that makes us angry? What is the root of the angry expressions and, and outrage that we show to other people? She shows us that anger comes from believing that we need something, something so desperately, something to validate us, to reaffirm us, to give us value, and then being denied that very thing. It's not just wanting that thing. It's much stronger than that. It's needing that thing. It's the difference between wanting and demanding. It's the difference between anticipating something and expecting something. Now, I can't think of a better illustration for this than when we see kids have temper tantrums. When they're hungry, but they're not fed, they get angry. Or perhaps a better word to say it is they get hangry. A phenomenon that's very common in my household. I have hangry kids all the time because they don't just want food. They need it. They don't just desire food. They demand it. They're not just anticipating it. They're expecting it. And when they don't get it, they get hangry. When they want a toy and they don't get it, that causes them to be angry. When they want to watch a show, when they get home from a walk or from going out and they don't get to watch a show, they get angry. Now we look at that and we roll our eyes and we say, well, kids will be kids. But if we're honest, we're actually not that different. We see that in Sarai. You know, she may not have wanted food or toys or shows, but she desperately wanted a child. And she so desperately wanted a child that she railed at God when she didn't get one. She lashed out at her husband. She humiliated the faithful servant who had served her for years to the point that she ran away. She had a temper tantrum. Anger can be ugly. And the reality is is that the more that we care about the thing that we're denied, the uglier uh, our anger becomes. And we know what that's called, right? It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. It's valuing something other than God with the value that only God deserves. It's a thing that we turn to in order to derive our sense of significance and security. That, that center of our lives that, that we look to to satisfy us and to give our lives meaning. When we look to anything other than God for that validation, satisfaction, and provision, we're committing the sin of idolatry. That's what gets in the way of waiting on the Lord. That's the heart of it. It's idolatry. The greater our love for things other than God, the weaker our love for God becomes. And the weaker our love for God becomes, the weaker our will to wait. You see that? That's what's happening to Sarai. She loved the idea of having children more than she loved God, which made her unwilling to wait on the Lord. Her lack of waiting was really just the symptom of her lack of love for God. Now we know that idolatry is a dangerous thing. Not only because it contradicts the very purpose for which we were created. We were created to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when we love other things with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're contradicting, we're undermining the very reason why God made us. 
That's why idolatry is dangerous, and yet it is even more dangerous than other sins because it is so incredibly subtle. You know, in the Old Testament, all you had to do to identify the idols of God's people was to look at the statues they were worshiping. But in the New Testament era, when we've done away with physical idols, our idols are in our hearts. That's what Ezekiel 14 verse three says. It says that we have taken our idols into our hearts. That's why the apostle Paul says that when we covet something, when we want something so much that we're willing to do anything to get it, we're committing idolatry. Or why Jesus says we can worship money because we're treating money like we would treat God. Our idols are in our hearts. They're hidden there in secret, dwelling unseen and unnoticed. But these two things that we've seen in our text, anger and a lack of desire and willingness to wait upon the Lord, they expose those idols and they reveal what it is we are truly Worshiping. Now we're going to think about that a little bit more when we get to the application and the conclusion. But, but that's, here we have a diagnostic framework to see what it is we are loving more than we are loving God. We look at what makes us angry and we chase, trace that back to what are we demanding that we really just should be desiring? What are we expecting when we really just should be anticipating? What is giving us the temper tantrums? And what is causing us to refuse to wait upon the Lord so that we take control of the situation ourselves? Those are the things that reveal and expose our idols. That's what Sarai teaches us about waiting upon the Lord. She teaches us that idolatry is at the heart of our failure to wait upon the Lord. But what about Abram? What does he have to teach us about waiting upon the Lord? The lesson he has to teach us is quite different, but no less important. And that leads to our second point. Abram's passivity, passivity. If one thing marks Abram's faith so far in the book of Genesis is that he was completely inconsistent. It was all over the place. It fluctuated so much going up and down, strong and weak, that one commentator likened Abram's faith to a roller coaster. We're staggered by how up and down he can be from chapter to chapter. Here in chapter 16, we meet Abram at a point where his faith was down once again. Now, in order to understand what he did wrong, we're gonna have to do some close textual work. We're gonna have to look at the language that our text uses to describe these events. And that begins in verse two. Notice how the text describes what Abram did in response to Sarai's plan. It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, if you've read the beginning of Genesis recently, you'll likely have noticed that this phrase sounds familiar. It's meant to bring our attention to another time when a husband listened to the voice of his wife when he should have listened to the voice of God. What Abram did here was a repeat of what Adam did in the garden. God told Adam that he would die if he ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, but Eve, having been deceived by the devil, you shall not die told him the opposite. And as creation spirals down into the darkness of sin and the fall, God began his curse of Adam with these words, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. It's a unique phrase in the book of Genesis that's meant to connect the different narratives together. Now the parallels between the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter 16 don't stop there. 
In verse three, the text describes the giving of Hagar to Abram as follows. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. That sounds just like Genesis three, verse six. Eve took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So it's clear that, that the Lord, working through the inspired writer of Genesis 16, is, is showing us that there are connections between this chapter and Genesis 3. But the question for us is why? That's very interesting from an academic level, but how does that impact the way that we read Genesis 16 and apply it to our hearts? What well, shows us that Genesis 16 is a kind of second fall, a repeat of the original sin committed by our first parents in Eden. And what was Adam's original sin? It was that he stood by as his wife was tempted and he passively let her disobey God before participating in that sin himself. It's the sin of passivity. Abram was passive when he should have been active. He was a follower when he should have been a leader. He listened to his wife when he should have listened to his God. And because of that, he let his wife dictate their family plans instead of gently leading her back to God's word. In this moment, Abram wasn't just a doubter. He was a failed leader of his family. We see that again in verses five and six as Sarai blames Abram for the offense she had suffered. She's yelling at him, cursing at him, telling him that she wants God to judge him and her. And what does Abram say? What should, what should he have said? He should have lovingly corrected her. He should have patiently calmed her down. He should have reminded her that Hagar now was just as much his wife as Sarai was. But instead, he takes the easy way out in verse six. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. How could he say that? At this point, Hagar is no longer his wife's servant. She is his own wife as well. They didn't just have a baby together. Verse three says that they got married. And that meant that he was just as responsible for caring for her and protecting her as he was towards Sarai. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tells Sarai to do whatever she pleases. Sarai may have been the one dealing harshly with Hagar by humiliating her and mistreating her, but Abram was the one who allowed it to happen. Hagar may have been his second wife, but she was still his wife. And Abram allowed her to be abused because he was too passive, too selfish, too lazy to do anything about it. Now the lesson Abram teaches us about waiting upon the Lord is this. It's not the same as doing nothing. Waiting upon the Lord doesn't mean that we sit back, relax, and wait for God to do everything for us. Being patient isn't the same as being passive. Waiting upon the Lord often involves actively doing things. We know these things like praying, studying God's word, but it also involves seeking counsel, making wise decisions, and always doing the right thing. And for Abram, Waiting upon the Lord meant helping his wife to wait upon the Lord as well. It meant that he should have actively taken steps to protect and to care for Hagar. But you may wonder, well, how, how is that waiting upon the Lord when you're acting, aren't you failing to wait? 
You know, when we start acting, aren't we trying to fix our problems for ourselves? Aren't we taking ownership of the situation and leaving God out of the picture? Well, it certainly could become that. We could certainly take on the mindset that, well, this is all on me. I have to fix this, I have to fix this or no one will fix this. And that, that would be wrong. That would be failing to wait upon the Lord. But if we, if we act while prayerfully and humbly submitting the results to the Lord, we are still waiting upon the Lord. So let me take a moment now to address the men. I think this lesson is just as much for women as it is for men. But I think that men have a particular struggle in this area in our generation. Men, how often have we confused being patient with being passive? How often have we chosen to stay silent when we should have spoken up? Or we have stood by and watched when we should have stood up and done something? How many times perhaps have we seen our wives distraught, upset, angry, and retreated into the comfort of our phones or our televisions? How many times have we let our wives perhaps make harmful decisions, decisions that we knew would be harmful for them, but we said, oh yes, honey, go, go do that, I support you. Not because we thought it was the best thing for them, but because we were too lazy or too afraid to counsel them otherwise. How many times have we said, okay, do whatever you want? Not because we thought it was best for them, but because we just wanted them to get out of our faces. Man, it is too easy for our laziness to masquerade as love, for our sloth to dress up as support. That was Adam's sin. That was Abram's sin. And now it's our sin. So Sarai's angry, Abram's passive, all of us, we're feeling convicted. Where do we find our hope? How does this lead us to Christ? What do we do with this conviction that we feel. Well, that leads us to our third point and the final part of our text, Hagar's hope. As Hagar flees from her abusive mistress, verse seven tells us that she has an unexpected encounter in the wilderness. While she rested at a spring on the way to Shur, which was the desert in Northwest Sinai next to Egypt, which was likely where Hagar's going because she's from Egypt. Verse seven says that the angel of the Lord found her Much has been written about the identity of the angel of the Lord. Uh, He appears multiple times in the Old Testament. You know, is he an angelic being? Um, Is he like a man who is speaking on behalf of God? We don't have time to wade into that debate. Um, I think at the very least, it's fair to say that the consensus is that when the angel of the Lord speaks, God speaks. The angel of the Lord, when he is present, God is present. He represents the presence of God and the authority of God. That's not immediately clear to Hagar because she speaks to him like she would another human being. But later on in verse 13, she realizes that one she's speaking to is God himself. And so she says, um, you are the God of seeing. And she says that to the angel of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God. I have heard from God. I have seen God for myself. So with the knowledge that it is God speaking to Hagar in mind, we look at the first words he says to her in verse eight. Pay attention here. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Did you notice the precious truth in this verse? This is the first time in this entire chapter 
that someone speaks to Hagar by name. Sarai called her my servant. Abram called her your servant. But the Lord calls her by her own name, Hagar. Because he's not only interested in using her, she's not just a servant in his eyes. She is a precious daughter who was created in the image of God. And he sees her as an individual with dignity and worth. And so at the very outset, the Lord is showing Hagar that he is different. He doesn't just care about what she can do for him. He cares about who she is to him. He loves her with a personal love, a love that focuses on her as an individual created in his image. And so he asks her where she's coming from and where she's going, not because he doesn't know, but to engage in conversation, to express care for her. I I wanna know where you're coming from and where you're going. And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Then in verse nine, the Lord tells her to do the impossible. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. He gives her a command. Go back to your abusive mistress. Well, how could he expect her to do that when Sarai had treated her so harshly? How was that fair? You know, returning to Sarai was probably the last thing that she wanted to do, and yet that's what God required of her. How, how would the Lord persuade her to do that? Well, by doing the same thing he has always done to persuade his people to obey, by giving her a promise. Listen to this wonderful quote from John Calvin. God stimulates us more powerfully to the performance of duty by promising than by ordering. Isn't that a wonderful truth? God is the God of the universe. He holds our lives in his hands. He created us by the word of his power. He gives us every breath that we breathe. He could order us, command us to do whatever he wants. And yet how he chooses to relate to us is by giving us precious promises so that we not only do what he wants, but we want to do what he wants, and we believe that he will give us the grace to do what he wants. And here God, we see in his wonderful mercy, giving the most unlikely of people, this Egyptian, this runaway, this slave girl, one of his precious and very great promises, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God sets his gaze upon the lowliest of people and lifts them up with his precious and very great promises. Why does he do that? Because of what the name of Hagar's son tells us. He is Ishmael, which means God hears. And what he has heard has been the sound of her affliction. And so he promises her that she shall bear this son and he would grow up to become a wild donkey of a man, a man who would live with the freedom she always wished she had but didn't. No one would be able to tame him. Now notice what God doesn't promise to Hagar. He doesn't promise that Sarai would stop dealing harshly with her. He doesn't say, if you go back to Sarai, you're not gonna suffer anymore. You know, life's gonna be different for you once you go there. I'm gonna speak to her. I'm gonna put her in her place. I'm gonna correct her. Everything is gonna be okay if you return. He doesn't say that. Indeed, as we will see later on in chapter 21, immediately after Isaac is born, Sarai 
in her characteristic way of treating Hagar, would urge Abram to cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She's still going to deal harshly with her. That's not going to change. But now Hagar's okay with that because she has had an encounter with the living God and received the assurance of his care. And so in verse 13, she gives the Lord a name. Remember this. El Roy, El Roy, the God who sees. God sees the abused slave. God sees the forgotten wife. God sees the runaway mother who has no hope or home in the world. And when God sees, God cares. Hagar isn't afraid to return to Sarai anymore because she has seen the God who sees her. And this God will care for all of her needs no matter how hard life may become. Now let me ask you, is, is that you today? Are you a Hagar? Have you been forgotten? Have you been overlooked and neglected? Do you feel alone in the wilderness, running away without hope and without a home? Then know this, God sees you. God sees you in all your weakness, in all your sin, in all your hopelessness, and he cares for you. He goes out into the wilderness to find you and to bring you to himself. Hagar commemorates this occasion by naming the water well, Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. That was her way of saying that she believed that the God who saw her would always see her. This was a mark of permanence, saying this is part of who God is, not just what God does. This isn't a temporary act of mercy. This is a permanent mark of his holiness. God sees. And that is why, my friends, we have received the same care that Hagar has. God has seen our sin and how it has afflicted us. He has seen how our sin has driven us away from him. He's seen how it has led us into the wilderness of suffering and shame to wander without hope and without a home. But in Christ Jesus, our savior, he has sought us out and found us so that we could also call him El Roy, the God who sees us and the God who cares for us. We who have been forgotten have now been forgiven through the death of God the Son. He died for our sins. He paid for our debts. And now he reconciles us to God, the one who sees us and loves us. It is ironic that the hero of chapter 16 isn't Abram, nor is it his wife Sarai. It is Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman. And she is the one who responds to God's promise with faith. And it was her faith that enabled her to obey God's command to return to her mistress and to wait and see how the Lord would answer his promise in his own way and in his own time. Well, how do we become more like Hagar? How do we learn to wait upon the Lord like she did? Well, let me briefly suggest three things. First, we must identify our idols. We must identify our, our idols. Our idols are the greatest threat to our faith. That was the case for Sarai, and that remains the case for us. The reason why we stop waiting for the Lord is because our idols cause us to want something so desperately 
that we're not willing to wait any longer. And so like Sarai, we seize control of the situation ourselves. There are a number of ways to identify our idols, but one of the most important is to examine what makes us angry. What causes you to lash out at your loved ones? What leads you to doubt God, to not want to spend time with him in his word and in prayer? What causes us to nurture this bitterness in our hearts towards other people for the wrongs that they've done to us? Well, if we spend some time, perhaps with the counsel of others, tracing that anger into the hearts to see where our desires have become demands, where our anticipations have become expectations, we will find our idols. And when we have found our idols, we need to attack those idols with the same zeal as Israel in the Old Testament attacked the idols of the nations without mercy and without hesitation. Every single day we need to take our idols and call upon the Lord to kill that idol and put God in our hearts in their place. That's something that we have to do to fight, to struggle, because our idols have a strong grasp on our affections. We need to identify our idols. Second, we must check our motives. We must check our motives. For those who are inclined to being passive, to inactivity, you need to ask yourself, well, am I waiting on the Lord? Or am I using that as an excuse to be lazy? And for those who always want to do things, for those who want to solve their own problems, you need to ask yourself, am I trusting in God to take care of this? Or have I left God behind in my zeal to fix this myself? For the passive person, you need to remember that there's a fine line between waiting on the Lord and being sinfully passive. And for the active person, there's a fine line between doing what's right, like Abram should have, and leaving God behind, like Sarai did. We need to check our motives so that whether we are inclined to passivity or action, we would become people who do what's right while waiting upon the Lord and entrusting him with the result. Third and most importantly, we must see the one who sees us more clearly. By the power of his spirit, we need him to open our eyes to see like Hagar saw and to believe. To not only believe that God sees us as a mass of people, as a congregation, but to see that, to understand and to believe that he sees us as individuals. He sees me. He sees you. He sees us as individual people whom he cares for with an everlasting love, just as he cared for Hagar. You know, Hagar ultimately didn't come to trust God and to wait upon the Lord because she rehearsed a set of propositions. She ultimately ended up trusting him because she had an encounter with the living God. That's what God has made possible through Jesus Christ. Christ has made a way for us to encounter the living God, to see the God who sees us every single day. So that through Christ, his blood spilled on the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God would give us eyes to see him that we might turn, believe, and wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Father, truly you are a God who sees us though the world may not. 
we live in a time when we are more connected than ever and yet more lonely than ever because no one really sees us for who we are. And those who are in our lives, many times we only know them as people who want to use us rather than want to love us. But Father, you are not like that. Thank you for showing us the same care that you showed to Hagar in Christ, the ultimate display of your personal love for sinners like us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn as we behold your glory in the face of Christ, to wait upon the Lord, to entrust the future to you, to do what's right without seizing control, and to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.